0: This episode is brought to you by Mustard Seed Communities, providing a loving home to abandoned children with disabilities in Jamaica and around the world. Your support to Mustard Seed provides food, medicine, therapy, and lifelong loving care for the most vulnerable. Please make a donation today at mustardseed.com.
1: And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis.
0: You know what I realized this week hmm. is that it's not actually Lent. Still, I don't know if you've had this <laughs> thought, but like, <laughs> yeah. I I was just thinking about I don't know the general state of my life and i was like oh but easter's mm-hmm. on the way and i uh, no, it, it happened like a month ago
1: and it, it is still easter
0: yes it fact. is still Easter. <laughs> he is still risen but even though it feels like Len, it can
1: it can be hard to remember that <laughs>
0: yeah but anyway that uh i guess that answers the question of how i'm doing ashley how are you doing uh same <laughs> yeah that, no that makes sense
1: uh but in in a more Lenten spirit, we are sticking to seltzer this week. Um, one of the highlights of my time in quarantine is um finding new flavored uh seltzer waters, and this week I've got cucumber melon, so that's, that that's pretty great.
0: Is, that's so <laughs> ridiculous. I can't think of a nice insult, so I'll just stay quiet. Um, but yeah, I've just got uh, I've got unflavored seltzer water. Water also uncarbonated seltzer water.
1: Uh, so so just water? Yeah, I'm, yeah,
0: I just got water this week. <laughs> I know it's pouring, but... That's
1: cool. Cheers.
0: Cheers to that. And who are we talking to this week?
1: We are talking to John Petrozelli. He is the principal of Colby Academy, which is this really innovative ca- Catholic school in the Diocese of Allentown, Pennsylvania, that serves students who are in recovery from addiction.
0: Yeah, so this is part of America Magazine's uh, special focus on education this week. Um, Throughout the year, uh, America devotes select issues to focus on a particular theme. And this month, our May issues are focusing on education and thought leadership. And so there are all kinds of special features um, in addition to this episode, like the impact that coronavirus is having on Catholic education, especially in low income areas. Um, And also, uh, this lovely piece that Ashley has. Uh, completed this 5,000-word feature essay on <laughs> Wyoming Catholic College. So I thought we'd, uh, before we get into SOTs, I, I wanted to talk to you about this really, like, triumph of a of a feature that you Aww. wrote for our, our May 11th issue. Thank you. So if you, so this is about Wyoming Catholic College. This is a small, rural Catholic college. Um, not a lot of students. Uh, why did you want to focus on this and write an entire feature on it?
1: Well, I would say there are two um, reasons I wanted to go to Wyoming Catholic College, or maybe three. One, they have horses, and I love horses, and I wanted to go ride horses, <laughs> which I got to do. Um, but more seriously, um, you know, education is a big uh, focus at America. You know, Jesuits are known for their involvement in education, um, and we wanted to tell a different story uh, and see what else was out there. And so this is just, like, such a different school. Um Different in in, in in every way. So, besides it being in Wyoming, um, some of the you know most distinctive features are is its uh, technology policies. So, students do not have cell phones. Every year when they arrive on campus, they give their cell phones away to their prefect. Um and are you know screen free <laughs> throughout the semester um they do have laptops, but not in class. they just have them to write papers. their internet access is pretty limited, so no Netflix, no Facebook, no twitter um just what they need to do research papers. their attitude towards technology is not that it's like this evil to be avoided but something to be engaged intentionally and I think now that we're all kind of stuck on our computers and phones as you know, the only way to connect with each other, having a healthier relationship with technology seems like it would be a useful thing. So that's unique. Um, In addition to that, uh, there are no majors. Everyone takes the exact same classes over the four years. So it's an integrated curriculum where you're learning about the great books um, and Latin and horsemanship, as I mentioned, uh, is required of every student, uh, along with an outdoor uh, leadership program. So students, when they arrive on campus as freshmen, go on a three-week backpacking trip through the um Rocky Mountains uh and you know get a crash course in in first aid training and surviving in the wilderness. So it's just like a very unique mix yeah. of, you know, Catholic community where you know they you can go to mass every single day, confession is always available, and then this great books curriculum and then this outdoor component. So those three things together just like made it a fascinating subject for me.
0: And did you what did what were you expecting when you got there and in- W- Wasn't were any of those ex- expectations sort of unturned?
1: Yeah. So, if anyone has heard of Wyoming Catholic College um, outside of you know that small community, it might be um, because it was kind of featured in this surprise off Broadway hit in the, this past fall um, called Heroes of the Fourth Turning,
0: which uh, just was nominated for a. It was a finalist in the Pulitzer, right?
1: Right, and so the. Uh, the playwright for that play is the son of the president of Wyoming Catholic College and this play takes p- takes place in a fictionalized version kind of of Wyoming Catholic College. So in that play you have these students who are, you know, debating Trump and abortion and all the like hot political topics of the day and like how how Catholics should engage with the world or how they should retreat from the world and those kind of conversations. So I kind of went in Thinking it would be a little bit more of a um, politically charged atmosphere, maybe, or like intentionally cut off from the wider world. Um, but what I found is is not that. You know, it does have a kind of monastic feel. You're 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 in a pretty isolated area. It's hard to get there, um, but it's not. Like they're shutting off the world because they see the world as a bad place. It's that they see these as four sacred years to really immerse themselves in the um, philosophy and literature and theology of the Western tradition.
0: But, the, but I I suppose it's probably fair to say that the the campus is not particularly diverse.
1: Um. Yeah. I. So there's. Uh, or or is it
0: in terms of religious makeup?
1: <laughs> oh no. Yeah. So there so the college is pretty new. They were founded in 2007. So they've been around, um, a little over 10 years. Um, and they have grown from 33 students to 174 students. Um, and within that, I would say (laughs) 99.9% have been Catholic there. When I asked that question, um, they, they did say that they've had a couple of agnostic students over the years and, you know, anyone is welcome, but like, you know, it does self-select for for Catholic students, I would say. So I, um, I, I went on this trip in February, kind of like. Right before the world seemed to fall apart, um, and you know, so this is a school where you know they don't have la- they don't have laptops in the classroom. Um, they really rely on primary texts and like a Socratic seminar style teaching. Um, and so the idea of switching or moving that to a virtual setting, I was like, how are they going to pull that off? So I did some follow up interviews with um, the president and a couple of professors, and they were like, yeah, our our students are the ones enforcing the technology policy now because they're they're so used to us saying, you know, stay off your phones and be present to the people you're with. And now they're at home and that's what they want to do. They wanna they want to be with their family and help, you know, maybe with their younger siblings or a grandparent who's in the house. So the college has kind of had to work around the students' willingness to make themselves available twenty four seven, which you can with technology. So I thought that was interesting.
0: Well the essay is really fascinating, really well-reported, and the the storytelling, uh, just alone, your uh, struggle to get to middle-of-nowhere Wyoming was <laughs> uh, worthy of reading in itself, and our listeners can find that. We'll put it in our show notes, but it's also going to be at org. So uh, congrats, Ashley, on the... It's a cover article, right? It's, it's also it our May the, 11th issue, so... May 11th. All right.
1: All right, we'll move on to Signs of the Times now, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. Our first story comes from the Supreme Court, which this week heard oral arguments in a case about the separation of church and state, and specifically, who counts as a minister and how much should the government be able to control how religious institutions hire and fire their employees.
0: And specifically, whether or not uh, church organizations should be uh, under the same discrimination guidelines and laws as the rest of the United States. The case involves uh, sort of a combination of two lawsuits that were brought, uh, two different Catholic schools in California. One is suing a Catholic school for age discrimination after her contract was not renewed in 2015, uh, when she was in her 60s after 15 years of teaching. The other teacher, who has since died... Uh, is sued for disability discrimination. Her contract wasn't renewed after she told the school that she was going to need to take time off for breast cancer treatment.
1: Right. And in both these cases, the schools say that the teacher's contracts were not renewed because of age or uh, this teacher needing needing to take time off for chemotherapy, but because of their performance in the classroom. Um, And so the question for justices is the schools are saying, okay, these teachers... uh, Taught religion in addition to other classes. So we consider them ministers. And if they're considered ministers, then they are not allowed to sue the school um, under anti discrimination laws.
0: Right. So normally, if this were happening at a public school, we, we would sort of be evaluating the arguments that the teachers have and the schools have just sort of on their face, right? But this, because we're talking about Catholic schools and because of the precedents that the Supreme Court. Is set thus far about this ministerial exception. We're trying. The Supreme Court is trying to decide whether or not you can't even sue the schools in the first place.
1: Right. Yeah. So we're not going to try, or I'm not going to try to like decide whether these teachers were fired because they were bad teachers or be- for other more nefarious reasons. Um, cause- and that's not what the Supreme Court is deciding. It's whether they should even be able to bring this up. And I think I'm generally in favor of the government. Um taking a more hands-off approach uh, to uh, religious institutions and, and defining religion the way that we would define religion. You know, like we don't confine our religious activities to church on Sunday. And so there's a little bit of, I don't know, it could be kind of clericalist to say, no, like, there's no way that a teacher could be considered a minister because, you know, they're not a priest. They're just a teacher. Um, they are people who um, are are passing on the faith to the next generation. So I do see the school's perspective of wanting to be able to decide how that's done.
0: Yeah. On the other hand, this could have some pretty wide implications, right? This could extend well beyond uh, teachers. The Catholic Church employs all sorts of people, right? We have charities and hospitals and magazines, and whether or not you know you could be fired uh, for discriminatory reasons based on your your gender, your sexuality, your age, um, those protections that are normally in place for you in the in the U.S. labor force um, could really. I I I don't look forward to a world where people don't have those identities protected just because they work for a Catholic church, especially in a country where you know we, we don't have a ton of safety net when you lose your job in particular.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess I would say if the church is asking for this, for this, um, freedom to make decisions about who they're employing and who is, um, inculcating the faith in, in young people in particular, um, you know, that's a, great responsibility. And and if they want to keep and that's a great freedom to have and it's an important freedom to have. And if they want to hold on to that freedom and not feel greater encroachment by the state, we just need to make sure that we really aren't discriminating and not not just because it's illegal, but because it's immoral.
0: Well, that's and that's the point here is that I think both of these cases don't really look great on paper, right You have especially this this teacher who went to a principal and said, "You know, I've got breast cancer, I'm going to need time off for treatment, and then all of a sudden her contract doesn't get renewed right whether or not that is illegal, it is certainly the court of public opinion rightly so is going to look at this Catholic school and think what what in the world mm-hmm. like you're you're abusing this power, you have one, and two, I do not want." a school that makes decisions like that imparting morality on my child. Right. And so I think it probably is incumbent upon people within the church to hold us to a higher standard for stuff like this, especially if, uh, these people aren't going to have the protection of the law behind them.
1: Right. But we won't know the outcome of this case until June when the Supreme Court comes down with their decision. So we will keep you posted when that happens. What's our next story, Zach?
0: So- it's part of our regular segment to take a, a look at communities that are being impacted by the coronavirus pandemic that aren't getting a lot of attention. Uh, this week, we want to look at uh, religious communities. We've known for a long time that the coronavirus is especially dangerous for the elderly, in that living in a group setting like a nursing home heightens that risk. Um, and among those most at risk who are older and live in group like settings are men and women religious living in r- infirmaries and retirement communities.
1: Yeah. So we've gotten reports in the last few weeks about um, communities that have been really hard hit. There's the infirmary attached to St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia, where six out of the 17 Jesuits living there died of COVID-19 over a two-week period in April. um, There was a community in Livonia, Michigan, where seven Felician Sisters of North America died in April. Um, And this is, it's part of a, You know, it's not just religious communities, of course. This is a a bigger story about how we um, house and care for elderly Americans.
0: Right. And so nationwide, over 25,000 workers and residents of long-term care facilities have died of COVID-19, which is more than a third of the fatalities from the pandemic in the United States. And in 14 states, nursing home deaths account for more than half of coronavirus fatalities.
1: Right, so it's a really it's a really awful part of this pandemic. Um, but there are things that could be done to to slow the spread of disease in these nursing home facilities. Um, in the short run, they like the rest of the country. Um, but more acutely, they they need more testing right now. In um nursing homes, you they're only able to get tests for for residents um, if they're showing symptoms. But we've seen that this virus can be. Passed between people, even if they're asymptomatic. So we now know that you know in nursing homes they're at especially high risk. So it seems like that should definitely be a priority um, when when tests are available that that they're going to these facilities. Right. And
0: longer term, and this extends beyond. I think the coronavirus pandemic. We as a country and a society have to move away from housing seniors in these large facilities that oftentimes are laid out more like hospitals than homes. Right. Like places where residents are sharing rooms and bathrooms and that when the next, if there's a next pandemic is going to make it explode all over again.
1: Right. And this is something even before the pandemic, Pope Francis has talked a lot about the need for, especially solidarity between young people and the elderly. Um, because one, us young folk have a lot to learn from our grandparents. Um, but also the elderly are a a victim of what Pope Francis calls the throwaway culture. Um, like you said it's very easy to just house um the elderly in in institutional settings that don't really respect um their human dignity um where there often these are for-profit institutions where the number of caretakers to residents is is pretty low um and so you know these like I said, these are our grandparents, and we should want them to have the highest level of care possible, um, which we we just have seen during this pandemic that that so many don't
0: right and Pope Francis has called on us to pray for the elderly, especially those who are afraid of dying alone um, he, as he Pope Francis pointed out, there are roots, our story in our history. Um, we always like to end these segments on one thing uh, or a couple things that you can do to try and help. Uh, one, there are a number of charities you could donate to, to help with, um, aging religious in particular. One we want to highlight is SOAR, um, support our aging religious. Um, and you can, they do really great work, uh, supporting the people in our church who have given so much to us and now need a little bit more of our help. And so you can make a donation to them at SOAR-USA.org. What's our last story, Ashley?
1: So we wanted to end this week signs of the times with a shout out to the class of 2020, uh, across the country, uh, students are graduating, but aren't having their typical graduation ceremonies.
0: Yeah, that really sucks. And, uh, I'm really, if you're listening to this and you are a graduating senior, um, we're really sorry about not being able to gather and mark this incredible moment in your life. But as, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci said this week, try to hang in there. Um, He is the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institute of Health. And you probably know him from the number of media spots he's been doing trying to educate the American public about the coronavirus pandemic and ways we can stay safe from it. But you might not know that he also... is a graduate of two Jesuit educational institutions.
1: Right. So he did his high school education at Regis in New York City, and then he graduated from Holy Cross College in Worcester, Massachusetts.
0: And this week, he released a video commencement-type address to um, graduates of Jesuit high schools around the country. Where he credited his education with teaching him both precision of thought and economy of expression, um, and commenting on how those two habits inform how he thinks, how he writes, how he communicates with the public every day, especially during these present unsettling times.
1: But he also said that just as important is the Jesuit emphasis on social justice and service to others.
0: And now, if there ever was a time, this is the time where those skills are going to be needed. And so, class of 2020, this is these are hard times. But we need you, we need your education, we need your skills, we need your compassion. And so we're going to get through this. uh, But for now, we just wanted to say to the class of 2020, congratulations.
1: Joining us from Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, is John Petrozelli. He's the principal of Colby Academy, the first Catholic high school in the country serving students in recovery. Welcome to Jesuitical, John.
2: Thanks, Ashley. Great to be here.
1: Thank you so much for taking the time to join us.
2: Oh, I'm happy to.
1: Good. Uh, so for people who aren't familiar with um, what a recovery high school is, can you just describe some of the defining features of these schools and maybe h- how many there are in the country, how, how common these are?
2: Sure. Uh, A recovery high school is a high school that serves students that are in recovery from drug and alcohol abuse. Uh, Across the country, there are about 35. Um, There are two in Pennsylvania where I'm located. Um, We're the first faith-based Catholic one, as you mentioned earlier. We're the second one here in Pennsylvania. And um, we offer all the same things as the other Catholic high schools in our diocese in addition to the recovery support. So there's daily counseling for uh, the drug and alcohol addiction. Um, We have uh, sober activities three days a week in the afternoon. Um, But as I like to say, you know, we want to provide the same type of high school atmosphere, this be the the typical high school, even though we're we're not the typical high school because of the, the students that we serve.
1: And John, can you talk a little bit about the context, uh, the community context? I think in the last couple of years, a lot of us have become aware of the, the opioid crisis and that, that has hit hard in Pennsylvania. So I'm wondering um, kind of where, this, where your school is situated in that.
2: Sure. You know, um, you may or may not know, but depending on the year, Pennsylvania has been either the third or the fourth uh, leading state in the country with opioid overdose deaths. You know, certainly not something you want to lead. Um, And you know that I think has opened the eyes of many Pennsylvanians and, and others across the country, uh, you know, to the need for uh, more help, and and that's certainly where a recovery high school plays into it. for For our purposes, right here in the Lehigh Valley and the Bethlehem area where we're located, we're situated between two counties, Lehigh County and Northampton County, and together those two counties are doing almost. 2000 drug and alcohol assessments a year for students between the ages of 13 and 18 you know that's obviously right in right in our neck of the woods with high school students so uh, and they're the kids that we know about so you know that there are more students that are not being assessed and of those students that are being assessed between 80 and 90% of those students need more support so we're certainly in an area, we're in a state, uh, we're in a region uh, that is screaming for help due to this crisis. What are some of the distinct parts of
0: of Colby, both as a, re- a recovery high school? So you, you mentioned um, counseling and addiction treatment. What what does that look like?
2: So we start off every day, um, and even now while we're doing it virtually with a 30-minute check-in meeting. We do morning prayer, new morning announcements, and then there's an opportunity for our kids to spend some time with our drug and alcohol counselor and just check in. What's going on? Did I have a good night at home? Did I have a fight with somebody? Am I thinking about using whatever's going on? Uh, And then we have a normal school day. And in the course of that normal school day, three days a week, we are um, offering group counseling two hours at a time And then two days a week, we do our one to one counseling. Uh, In the afternoon, as I mentioned a little bit ago, three days a week, we have alternative peer groups. Uh, In essence, they're sober social activities that is coordinated by a certified recovery specialist. So lots and lots of different kinds of uh, support. Um, You know, one of the tough things for us as a staff, we all have a connection to recovery and addiction, but none of us are in recovery. So it's been really important for me as the principal to bring people into the community that are in recovery, because I really think we want them to know those people.
1: Mm-hmm. And you, it's a pretty small community. So I imagine, you know, like the one-on-one relationships um, or small group relationships between students and teachers is really important. Um, I don't know, how did, how were you able to gain the trust of these students? I mean, recalling my own high school years, like you didn't, you didn't always want the help you needed.
2: Right. You you weren't walking into the principal's office and say, "Hey, I'm thinking about smoking pot when I get yeah. home this afternoon." Exactly. You know, and that has been a work in progress from our earliest days. And I think, as I say to our families when they come in for an interview, the fact that you're here, there's nothing to be ashamed of. We know why you're here. So there's nothing to hide. There's no reason to lie. You know, you're here because you have an addiction. There's an issue we want to help. So we we start from the very beginning and talk about trust and honesty. And, you know, in any kind of relationship, those two things are so key. But in a relationship like this that we're building to help somebody in, in recovery, it's even more key. And you know what's interesting is seeing how every student obviously is different they all kind of relate to somebody differently. They've all kind of said, "I feel really close to this person, and I'm going to share with this person." So, what one student, you know, may go, come to me and talk about, you know, something that's really troubling, they might not speak to, um, you know, Mrs. Halk, who's our English and Religion teacher. So, I think the fact that we we do have different people on staff, and we're all committed, and we all have you know, our connection to addiction, I think has helped the kids feel comfortable, you know, with somebody on staff, in addition to the counselors that they're working with.
0: Um, I'm wondering if you're like talking about the things that your kids are dealing with in them being the same issues that teenagers face everywhere. What are some of the things that working with the teens, like their world today is very different than my, even my world. When I was in high school, 10 years ago, I just think about the way that social media and technology taken over. How does how does that intersect with recovery and being treated for addiction?
2: You know, I think um, you hit it on the head there, Zach, with social media. We really encourage our kids to stay off social media because a lot of times they're seeing other kids posting things that's whether it's positive or negative can certainly have an effect on them. You know, this young man, since he's been home, he had some, some I'll put him in quotes, friends reach out to him that had been his friends prior to rehab. And when he said, you know, and I'm not using anymore. I'm not, you know, coming out and smoking pot with you guys or whatever. Uh, they basically said, okay, well, we don't have any time for you and that's it. Well, that was really traumatic for him because these were kids that he really did think were his friends. And because he's not going to use now, they're telling him, no, you're not our friend. And that's, for a 16-year-old kid, you know, a 15-year-old kid, that that's traumatic. And you know, we can't uh, minimize that. And I think that's really a lesson that we've learned. We can't minimize those things because they really could lead to relapse and and depression and mental health concerns and things like that.
0: I'm wondering if most of your students have prior experience with Catholic school.
2: Um we have uh one student who had been at a Catholic school uh, prior to coming to Colby. So the rest um, of
0: them, this is their first time in Catholic school as well? Correct. Yes, What? Correct. What, what is that like? I imagine that oh. has to be
2: a shock of, <laughs> it, of, its, of its own, right? It sure is. You know, it's, it, it can be culture shock. Um, now, several of our families are Catholic, but not all of them are. But we've had one student in Catholic school prior to coming. uh, Actually, let me correct that. Two students that are from Catholic school, but it can be culture shock. You know, you're coming in and now you have a uniform and, you know, there's obviously a, a stricter code of conduct, if you want to call it that, you know, we're, you know, we're on top of you. I mean, you know, we're a typical Catholic high school. We want you to succeed. So, you know, we want you to get to class on time. Not that, you know, in public school, they're not doing that, but, you know, there's, there's, I think, that whole piece of structure and accountability that at first I think can be a struggle for students, but over time they come to appreciate it. And we're seeing that now. We're seeing how they really miss, and they have told us this you know, during this pandemic, that they miss the structure, they miss the accountability, they miss knowing that from this time to this time, this is where they need to be and this is what they need to do. Um, knowing that that would probably happen. We have a little bit more relaxed dress code than the other Catholic schools. Um, but we do have a dress code. Uh, we don't have a shirt and tie option, uh, like the other Catholic schools do. Um, we, we chose a fleece over a sweater or a sport coat. You know, the shoes are a little more flexible, you know, so, so we, we had that in mind when, when we were putting this all together. And, and even in terms of, You know, some of the things that we have within the building. You know, I I wanted a space specifically for the students where uh, that was really their space. So we we call it the meditation room. They can go in there, it's their space. It's not a space that somebody like myself or one of the other staff members will come in and hang out with them. You know, if they need to decompress, if they need to pray, they can go in there. If they just need some time to be teenagers and go and they can listen to music in there. Then, then that's what they can do. But we were very cognizant of that fact, Zach, because we wanted to make sure that the transition into a Catholic school for those that weren't coming from one was as smooth as could be.
1: I know you're only a year in, but I'm wondering, looking back on this first year, if there, if there was a moment with, with a student um where you look back and you can think like yeah that's why that's why we did this that is the kind of breakthrough we were hoping for
2: oh my gosh i, I we could talk for another hour i could give you <laughs> we call them god moments uh, i'll share one um we were early on in the school year it was uh early november and i had a family in with us and You know, in a small school like this, anytime somebody comes into the building, the kids all want to know who it is, right? Because there's so few of us there. (laughs) He was enrolling that day. So I was with him and his dad and we were in the conference room and there's a knock on the door. And I'm thinking, I turn around, it's one of the kids knocking on the door. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, are you joking me? Like here I am with a family talking about what happens and we're going through. He obviously knows that that's what's happening. So I call him in. He's like, Can I ask you a question? He's like, Mr. P, can I ask you a question? So at this point, like I, I'm I'm ready to to like blow my stack. And I said, Yeah, what's up? And he's like, Is it okay if we take Gabe to a meeting tonight? And I'm like, oh my gosh, here I am getting so worked up that he's interrupting this meeting. And here's a young man. That wants to take this brand new kid and go to a 12 step meeting that night to introduce him what the meeting, what the 12 step meetings are. And my first thought was, this is the way we drew it up. This is the way our older kids, we said our older kids, the kids that are with us longer would become mentors for our younger kids. And it's exactly what happened, and the dad was blown away, and he said, "Yeah, we can make that happen." And they took him to his first meeting that night on his first day at Colby Academy. So, you know, that's just one of many that I could share. Just uh, it's it's just been tremendous to see the kids take ownership and really believe and support each other, um, celebrate with each other, but also put their arm around somebody's shoulder when they know they're struggling or having a bad day.
0: John, I just wanted to say thank you for your vocation in cat- both Catholic education and in, in starting this school. I, I I was taken the the moment that I heard that this was happening. Um, we do have one final question for you. Um, we ask all our guests this. Um, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or non-fictional, who would it be and why?
2: I thought all the hard questions were coming in the beginning of the interview. <laughs> um, I think back to Sister Mary Ellen Hussey, who was a a Benedictine sister, uh, died a few years back, um, was one of my first principals, who allowed me to be the teacher that I needed to be and said to me, John, if what you're doing is for the betterment of the school and for the kids, I want you to go and do that because ultimately it's going to affect so many people in the positive. And um, you know, may God rest her soul. She was a good, good woman who really always put the needs of others in front of her self. And there are lots of others like Sister in my career path that I could mention, but particularly her, um, who who helped me on my way to becoming what I think was, you know, a pretty decent teacher and a and a pretty a pretty good administrator.
0: All right, well, Sister Mary Ellen, pray for us, uh, John. Thanks again. Where can people find out more about Colby Academy?
2: If you want to learn more about us, we're at uh, www.colby-academy.com. Colby, Colby, like St. Maximilian Colby, our patron saint. uh, We're all over uh, social media, so you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And um, if you're ever in the Bethlehem area, the Lehigh Valley, uh, and you ever want to come and visit, we have an open-door policy where you you come and you say, hey, we want to learn more about Colby Academy.
1: That's fantastic. We'll definitely be following your um, progress and hope hope you <laughs> can finish up the school year well under these trying circumstances for everyone.
2: You know, we're we're going to do what we're doing. I have an incredible staff and we have great kids and we're making it work. So like everybody else out there, <laughs> Um, you know, we're doing the best that we can. And uh, we're, we're so grateful to everybody out there that have prayed for us and that, you know, have uh, helped us in any way.
1: All right. Thank you so much, John.
2: Great. Thank you so much, Ashley. Thank you, Zach. It's been uh, my pleasure. Thank you.
1: All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. We have just gotten a flood of support from listeners on our Patreon page, um, which has just been so meaningful for us. Um, We we have been really committed to bringing bringing new episodes um, and interesting guests uh, over the past few weeks. Um, And so hopefully that's been helpful to listeners. Um, So this past week, we welcomed Joshua Vincent, Cindy Wojtek, Amy Goldner, and Stuart Watson, along with
0: Justin Reyes, Beth Phillips, Brian Frey, and Michael Arrow. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We say this every week, but we can't do it without you. So to all of those names and to everyone who is also on that Patreon community already, thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: All right, now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. What do you have, Zach?
0: This week I have a consolation. Uh this past weekend we ha- Amanda and I, my wife, we had the we went to our first wedding as a married couple. Um now this was also over Zoom, so it was our first Zoom wedding. Uh and I don't know if anyone else has had the experience of marking one of these like big life moments um whether it's a wedding or an ordination or or a graduation over over Zoom. Uh I kind of went into it having no idea what it was going to be like, not sure what feelings it was going to bring up. Uh, if it would be sad, even that it, I would just be thinking about not being able to be present with someone in this moment, sort of focusing on the limitations. But I don't know. I, I maybe it was this wedding in particular, but was just overwhelmed by the goodness of people and their ability to, um, make commitments to one another and manifest god and his love uh and his goodness even in the midst of what is a tragedy in a pandemic and so i hope you get that same ex- listeners out there if you're watching one of these zoom ceremonies i hope you have the same experience but i was consoled greatly by the presence of god in um even this trying confusing time so um Thank you to Trista and Jacob for your witness. Yeah, I was going to say, who's
1: the happy couple?
0: (laughs) Yes, Trista (laughs) and Jacob, so please pray for them. Uh, Ashley, what do you have?
1: I have a consolation, also about love that looks differently, I think. I myself and a lot of people think of love in the context of things like marriage, um, but I've been seeing kind of like a grittier side of love the last um, week. Uh, I mentioned last week that my grandfather was coming home from the hospital after having uh, broken his femur. Um, So for the past week, he's been home um, and my parents have uh, been his uh, primary caregivers and, and he really, he's not capable of doing anything. So that means getting him in and out of his chair, in and out of bed, bathing him. Helping him eat, helping him go to the bathroom—all those things—and um, it's been like really hard uh, for all of us. You know, we, you know, we've been under quarantine for two months, and tensions were, you know, already there. But just um, witnessing my parents' just kind of quiet dedication to making my grandfather as comfortable as possible. Um, um, not getting a lot of sleep, doing a lot of laundry, all of that. It's just, that's also what love looks like. Um, and it's been a great example for me. I've I've had a pretty charmed life and not had to spend a lot of time in hospitals or with uh, seriously hurt and, and sick people. Um, so having the example of my parents just doing that hard, silent, Or hidden work um, of loving someone when they're at their at their most vulnerable has been really moving for me.
0: Yeah. Well, keep praying for your family and your grandpa.
1: Yeah, Grandpa Bob.
0: All right. Uh, Before you read these credits, I feel like uh, we should just say like it's not just Ashley and I putting the show together every week. There are so many people that that help us and make this happen. And so, in particular, all of the names are about to be read. Thank you. Um, The show is our favorite part of our job um and we can't do it without any of the people that ashley's about to read off so uh get us out of here
1: (laughs) all right we'll do Jesuitical is produced by Sebastian Gomes. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is a production of American Media in New York City for American Media. I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.